Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. I just to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. Really, rebellious lawyering is just another term we use for movement lawyering. And movement lawyering is underpinned by a belief that systemic change occurs through collective action and that action is directed and led by people that are most affected by the issues on the ground. So how can we as lawyers be more accessible to people and movements on the ground that seek to create systemic change? Movements for Change, Advocacy Strategies Transforming the Legal Profession and the Long Road Ahead, Truth-Telling and the Process of Reconciliation. Things that happen every single day, whether it's thinking about the communities that people live in and thinking about the traditional or original names of those places, whether it's thinking about how do we talk about the history of this place, the good, the bad, and the often the ugly and and hurtful and painful parts of it, and how do we, out of that, create a shared moment that allows us to own all of that history, to own all of that past, but create and forge a better future for us. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The concept of movement lawyering is a relatively recent one in our country's history. But for the past 10 years, there's been a growing number of legal professionals concerned by the level of injustice in areas such as First Nations rights, policing and mass incarceration. It's part of a global trend aimed at influencing or transforming the legal profession to better support historically disempowered communities. They do so through the use of a number of strategies such as litigation, policy advocacy and political lobbying. The concept of movement lawyering is based on the belief that change can only be achieved through collective action led by those most affected. To tell us more about it, I'm joined now by Teela Reid. Teela is a proud Wiradjuri and Whalewan woman. She's an activist, storyteller and lawyer based in Sydney. Teela, welcome to Speaking Out. Yama, thank you so much for having me, Larissa. So, look, I'd like to start just by getting a sense of who you are. So, can you tell us where you grew up and what sorts of things or people shaped your worldview? Yeah, I grew up in Gilgandra in western New South Wales. So, you know, at the time, just very lucky to be small town, small community, and really just raised by my extended family. Like, I look back now and think I didn't really know much of the world outside of my town and just, you know, raised by my single mum, but lived across the road from my grandparents and would, you know, march out of the school gates down the road and and see my grandfather's campfire lighting every afternoon and just throw my school bag down and we'd all sit around that. And I think at the time I didn't really realise what a privilege that was. It strikes me when I look at your work, though, that you've got a really strong sense of social justice. Where did that come from? I really just think it probably just comes from having a good sense of who I am and and my place in the world that was instilled in me by by my elders, really, and those around me. Um, Being born and raised in Western New South Wales, 
you know, you hear lots of stories about the injustices that our people faced in those communities. And really, when you think about New South Wales and Western New South Wales in particular, it did bear the brunt of invasion and colonisation. And those stories passed down to me, especially by my grandfather, um, you know, about how they were forced onto missions and, you know, by my great-grandmother who, you know, had to wear dog tags around their necks by virtue of being Aboriginal, having to ask for permission to come and go from their own homes. And, you know, my, my instincts clearly told me that there was just something so wrong about this country and what my people faced. And it, I think it really instilled a sense of obligation in me to to change systems and to encourage people to understand the truth, especially of the experiences in Western New South Wales. It's interesting too, because you, know, you paint that picture, it's so vivid. But at what point did you decide that the way that you were going to make change was through the law? Because there were a lot of paths you could have taken in terms of addressing those things. So what was it that made you think, you know, I'm going to be a lawyer or I'm going to go to law school? It's kind of strange that I am a lawyer to me like I sometimes have to tap myself on the shoulder and go hey like this is your life now because I know it sounds weird but I honestly think the law chose me as a career and this is something despite the hard work that I really just almost fell into not that I didn't work hard for it but you know I I remember at school, teachers would say, you know, there's something about you. You should keep going out and, you know, advocating for your people. Or I remember as well, you know, I'd be marched off to the Lands Council meetings, you know, every month with my grandfather, you know, when I was knee-high to a grasshopper. And I understood then just sitting back and looking at our elders um, in those moments, you know, fighting for land rights and navigating their ways around the system, that there was something sit well with me in the sense that it felt like every day was a struggle for my people. Through school, I was very sporty, very active, and so I I, I have a natural competitive streak. Straight after school, I went on to be a high school PE teacher because that was like, okay, I'm just going to be do sport now. But I think that really instilled in me so many values like of a collective, a team effort, an understanding of how we work towards a goal. And those traits I learned from sport and teaching are really still fundamental to how I lawyer. And it was when I was a teacher I was selected to go to the United Nations um, as Australia's Indigenous Youth Delegate there. And I think that was that was probably the most pivotal moment where it was like, okay, this is your opportunity now. Don't waste it. Your people, your ancestors fought so much harder than what you have to and have made this path easier for you. So go back and do law school. 
I love that there were these other things that you learnt before you came to law as opposed to that pathway that many people do where they just go from high school straight there without that extra experience. But what was the response of, of your family, um, who obviously was so, you're so close to and have been so influenced by when you, obviously it wasn't the first time you've graduated, but when you graduated with a law degree, what was it like for them? Yeah, my family were just so overwhelmed with love and gratitude. And to be honest, like my family were just like, okay, this is just another thing she's done. <laughs> like that just, it, it almost as well didn't phase them, which I love about my family because it, like it's just not anything that I'm not a label to them. I'm just me and that this, I think, more than anything is just the collective effort. The thing about actually practicing law is it's so different to what people think it's going to be like. And I imagine with your background and the insights you had about injustice when you were going in and the the fact that you've, you know, obviously wanted to do things that are going to, you know, be, be a bit of a game changer. What was it like for you when you first came out and started the, the practice of law and, and working within the system? Yeah, I think there's two parts of your question there. Like law school was really torturous for me um, because I honestly felt like I, it was a constant grind where I knew deep within my spirit that I did not necessarily accept the law as it as it was, and I could see so many of my peers around me, um, particularly those from privileged backgrounds who, you know, their parents are barristers, their their, par- their aunties and uncles are lawyers, their or dad is the judge. I went to law school with, you know, the daughter of this, the chief justice, for example. And so many of them had faith in the system, that the system was upholding these values of course, because, you know, it always worked for them. And so law school for me was a constant frustrating time because I could see so many parts of it that needed to change. Going into practice, I didn't go straight into practice. I went straight to work for a Supreme Court judge in the New South Wales court. And I just got this glimpse into this world that was like, wow, this is so far from those conversations around the campfire I had with my grandfather growing up. Like, this is real ivory tower stuff where, you know, these kinds of white privileged protocols were operating and I I felt I just didn't fit. So that made me work even harder um to to try and change and also use the law as a tool to empower our people after that when i went into practice i realized how disciplined i needed to be if we are serious about making systemic changes you've got to take yourself seriously as a practitioner and an advocate in order to cut through the bullshit, um, particularly when it comes to the way in which non-Indigenous peoples um, understand their own systems. So I think I developed an understanding early in practice that, you know, you have to be a rational 
in a way that is able to advocate and cut through spaces and bring your people along. And I think that's been a hard part of navigating, especially, you know, Larissa, as a, as a First Nations woman, functioning in these systems is not an easy path or career to take, but there needs to be people who are willing to use those tools to educate and empower our people. And and I think, you know, bring those systems down in a way that, you know, dismantles that privilege that white people have operated on and succeeded on for so long. One of the most profound things that I have grown to understand as a First Nations woman and lawyer is that each time you speak your own truth is, you know, is a challenge to these systems. And for so long they have been built to not to not hear us and not see us as First Nations women and people. And it's just really great now, I think, to see so many other um, First Nations lawyers coming through and being able to as well look up to so many other role models because I think it's an obligation on us to do the work. I want to talk now about some of the many strata engaged in as part of a broad agenda for reform of the system. Um, you've been a driver of the campaign for the Wallama Drug Court. Can you tell us more about what that is and why you think it's so important? Yeah, Drug Court is a proposal that's been extremely close to my heart. It's something I've worked on now since about 2016 with in particular a number and barristers and other stakeholders in the system and the way I see it is about an approach to abolishing the systems as we know it and it's a strategic way I think to disrupt the court processes in how they've always functioned and the most simple way to put it is the Wallama Court is an Aboriginal sentencing court. But it's also more than that when you unpack the detail of it. It's a court that is designed to ensure that the integrity and the voices of First Nations peoples coming before the court are heard and seen and taken seriously. Normally, our courts function in what we call, you know, um, just quick and cheap processes. And those ideals um, that are instilled in those, those general systems by, you know, white perspectives just don't do our people justice. You know, for example, the local court deals with over 90% of criminal matters these days. When you are getting... First Nations peoples at a disproportionate rate pumped through those systems, they're simply not being heard. It, it is it is like a sausage factory. So the Wallama Court aims to disrupt that system and treat our people as people. If you think about the criminal process, it, it's like a spectrum. On the one hand, you get, you know, the police contact at the community at the complete brunt end of that is where our people then are forced into the courts. And as a strategy, the design of Wallama is aimed to disrupt the system at its most brutal, blunt end 
to try and engage, you know, the police stakeholders and and hear the stories of, of those coming before the court. Because what we're not getting at the moment is the complete picture of the way in which these systems have traumatised our people since invasion and colonisation. Those are the stories we're not getting. It's not our trauma to carry. It's the trauma that these systems impose on our people and, and treat our people with, you know, not much dignity at all. So Wallamar really is about trying to set up within the New South Wales process a forum and a way that also makes sure that judges who are facing these people um, and defendants and families understand the impact of the system's trauma on our people. One of the things I find interesting and important about your advocacy is that you obviously have just given us an example of the the work you're doing on reform at the pointy end of the system, but you've also been a strong advocate at the national level and I'm, of course, talking about your work around the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Why do you think that is so important? I really do believe the Uluru Statement of the Heart is so important for for many reasons. I, you know, I remember at law school, one of the things that I was really passionate about writing about was these huge systemic changes, which is, you know, these ideas about First Nations sovereignty and how that might fit within, for example, a model of a new Australian republic. The Uluru Statement from the Heart really is one piece of the puzzle into all of the other changes we're fighting for in this country at many different levels. And this is just one level, the national level. As a working group leader on Section 5126, the race power, it was something that I looked and studied a lot more about at law school as well. And then that work just really translated into these constitutional dialogues that I was fortunate to be able to be part of. That really is a call, you know, to action to Australians to enable a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution and a Makarata Commission to enable treaties and truth-telling. And these ideas aren't new to the Australian advocacy landscape, but most certainly the strategy is different. And the strategy with the Uluru Statement from the Heart was not to, you know, hand over that hard work to politicians. It was about going direct to the people um, and having difficult conversations about how we as a collective build a people's movement for change. Because we know in First Nations affairs, we just can't rely on politicians to do the work. We're, we're living on really damaging cycles, for example, you know, four-year election periods where there's promises made. By the time anything gets up off the ground, you know, it's, it's another election period. And I think for sustainable changes in our communities, we need accountability beyond those political cycles and one way of achieving that is is to ensure that there's a stable and sustainable First Nations voice that can speak for our issues. And an example of that, you know, how that would practically work is if we look at what we're experiencing now in the pandemic and the lack of First Nations interest coming through. At the moment, we know that there's no obligation to hear us 
you know, at the top end of town. So it's just about rethinking the way in which our democracy works and valuing the voices of First Nations. It's probably not surprising to anyone who's been listening to our conversation that you're also challenging the profession to think differently and trying to get people to think about a concept called rebellious lawyering. And you're part of an organising team for the Reb Law Conference. Can you tell us what rebellious lawyering is? Yeah, rebellious lawyering, we're really excited to bring this to Australia, this idea or this theory around really rebellious lawyering is just another term we use for movement lawyering and movement lawyering is underpinned by a belief that systemic change occurs through collective action and that action is directed and led by people that are most affected by the issues on the ground so it raises the question to our profession how can we as lawyers be more accessible to people and movements on the ground that seek to create systemic change? And this was an idea the working group or the team behind it, which is five women, had kind of been inspired by the Rebellious Lawyers Conference in both America and the UK, where the theories come out. And it's kind of taking your role as a as a practitioner beyond, I guess, just the client to lawyer service delivery and looking at collectively, like, what is the role of lawyering? Because we are such a privileged and powerful profession, but at the moment, the way we function, it's very individualised. So how can we use our skill set to power movements on the ground? And while, you know, I think the theory is important and it's coming out of America and the UK, we do have some very good examples of things trying to change here. I think the one thing with Australia, though, is that there's we have a real, I think, underbelly of complacency where it's just kind of like oh yeah the politicians will just do what they want anyway so yeah it's just about raising um i guess an awareness of what advocacy strategies do we employ in litigation policy and strategic media to harness the changes that we really are fighting for on the ground. That conference is on next weekend. If people want to find out more about it and want to participate, how can they do that, Tila? They can go to reblaw.com.au and sign up. And we have, you know, an approach where we're aiming to make this accessible. Just pay what you can to attend the conference because it really is about, you know, moving the accessibility from lawyers who obviously on the one hand can afford these spaces, but we're trying to engage lawyers, activists, storytellers and community members as a collective to engage in these conversations because that's really the only way, you know, lawyers can be rebellious is is building these networks. And, you know, there are other parts of it as well. We know that systemic change doesn't come from public service lawyering in 
you know, as, as a as a tool, it, it's more about how do we build philanthropic approaches behind our lawyering. So it's going to be a really exciting conference. We've got some international speakers who are experts in this theory, and then we're going to start to hunt, unpack those conversations about what needs to get done here on the ground in Australia. I just want to pick up on one word you said then, which was storytelling, because of course, we've spoken a lot about all the work you've done in the legal area in a whole range of different ways. But you, along with Marinda Dutton, are the force behind Blackfella Book Club. So I just wanted to ask why you set that up and why that was important for you when you do so much other work. Blackfella Book Club, I'm so happy you asked about it. Like it's just that little passion space that Blackfella Book Club really is its own community. Like, and it keeps growing organically into this community that just has a love for First Nations storytelling. The way it started was I just woke up one day and had this like, instinct to just be like okay I think the name Blackfellow Book Club is really cool I'm going to see if the handle's available and this was at the beginning beginning of the pandemic in 2020 when we first went into lockdown and it just so happened the handle was available and we had already been having little book clubs at work for black lawyers and so it was just about this is just you know, a really lovely way to connect. And our people have always connected through storytelling. Stories sustain us, they give us meaning, and our First Nations ancestors are the original storytellers. And so it was just about celebrating that part of who we are as First Nations peoples. And now it's just grown into this space that, to be honest, we can't even keep up with it as two lawyers behind the handle but it just keeps growing itself so um it just comes from that passion that I said you know sitting around the campfire with my grandfather um and and knowing you know with Marinda the way we were connecting through the pandemic was through sharing stories and having yarns and it's really about challenging western notions of storytelling as well that these stories um the value we place on them in First Nations communities is not necessarily about how well they can be written in books, but it's about understanding that oral, stel- oral, oral storytelling is such an important part of who we are and that has legitimacy, that has value. And placing value on oral storytelling um, is is an important part of placing value on First Nations voices and ways of understanding the world. Because if you think about it, um, since time immemorial, our laws, our First Nations laws were passed down through oral stories, through dance, through art, and through understanding the landscape. So we really have, I think, instilled a philosophy under that, which I think is what carries it through. We've got so many non-Indigenous people now who are engaged in the space because they want to understand truth-telling and more about First Nations peoples. When in fact, if you really break down First Nations storytelling, everything is truth. The way we understand the world is, is speaking truth to power. And there is no real distinction between fiction and non-fiction in our world. 
And it's just one of those communities that we're really grateful for and we love to be able to provide the space for all storytellers to enjoy. We've spoken about such a range of ways that you're working to try and make a difference. What's your advice to other people out there who want to be game changers as well? I think the rule is there are no rules. <laughs> as a lawyer, we are so hinged on what's the rule? Where's the section? Give me that piece of legislation. I think the real beauty in knowing how to be an advocate is that, in fact, there are no rules. Like you, we are here to to test the boundaries, to create space for our people, to step up into our truth and own that space. And, you know, as a First Nations woman, not even as a lawyer, there is an obligation, I think, to step up into these spaces in different ways where our community needs us. One of those ways happens to be a lawyer for me. And it's about having that sense of who you are and your obligation as a First Nations person to step up when your community needs you. And I think as well, you know, when your ancestors call you to it. And when you know that as a First Nations person, nothing can kind of shift or shake your inner spirit. And, you know, there's so many people that have asked me for career advice as well. And I just think I'm probably the worst person to get career advice from because I've never really understood what career is right or where I fit. It's just more about what I feel and the impact I want to have on the world. And I think if people understand what their impact is, that'll call them to, to different spaces to step up. Can't tell you how much that resonates with me. I always feel like a fraud when anyone asks me for career advice. But the last thing I want to ask you tonight in terms of advice is obviously, I mean, we've just spoken about the range of activities that you're engaged in and how much energy that must take. And just talking to you, I think one of the things that really comes through is, you know, how much of that energy you have. But how do you look after yourself and your well-being? I think at the forefront of sustaining myself in this kind of, you know, time and place, it's just knowing that our ancestors fought really hard and much harder than what we have in front of us today um, and remembering that, remembering who we are and where we come from and, and having a sense of that inner spirit. And then I think day to day, really for me, it's about routine. Like it's about, you know, I live right on the ocean. It's about jumping in the ocean. It's two walks a day. It's doing the simple things right, drinking water, eating right, and making sure we're staying connected and supported. And, you know, your only competition is yourself, really. Amazing. Oh, Taylor, it's been such a privilege speaking with you this evening. Thank you so much for taking the time when you're so busy, but it's just been so amazing to hear of all the impressive things you're doing. Thank you so much for being on Speaking Out with us. Thank you so much for having me, Larissa. Taylor Reid is a lawyer and social justice advocate. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. 
This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. Soon you'll hear from CEO of Reconciliation Australia, Karen Mundine, as she outlines how best to heal divisions within our communities caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Right now, though, some music from blues and roots duo Busby Maru. Here they are with Paint This Land. We can drive with the windows down Chasing everything Closing gaps on this open road See what tomorrow brings We'll find our way As we sign our names on the sunburnt canvas
Busby Maru there with Paint This Land, a song taken from their album Postcards from the Shell House. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has exposed striking inequalities in our society. As a result, there is growing awareness of how marginalisation and entrenched inequality in Indigenous communities has deepened the experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people during the current crisis. In Western New South Wales, the situation has been compounded by long-standing issues of overcrowded housing, poverty and inadequate infrastructure. Karen Mundine is the CEO of Reconciliation Australia and is well-versed in how best to heal divisions within communities. I caught up with Karen recently and began by asking her how the current crisis is impacting on the reconciliation process. Yeah, look, it's it's an interesting one because I feel like in these kind of moments, it brings out both the best of us and the worst of us. And I feel like... Reconciliation is all about relationships and when you're creating distance, when you're creating necessarily people having to to stay away, it becomes quite the challenge of how do you continue to build relationships? How do you, I guess, focus on where the opportunities lie rather than always focusing on, I guess, the negative and I guess pointing out difference. But I also feel like that's also where we get to a really good space with reconciliation. It's when we can appreciate, empathise with difference is actually gets us into a much stronger place rather than just saying, well, you're like me and therefore we have something in common. That's important. But I think in these moments of crisis, in these moments of challenge, that actually can play into some of those divisions. The other thing that I thought would be great to talk to you about is that although Reconciliation Australia is obviously a national body and does a lot of work at that big national level with big national conversations, a lot of your very effective work is actually with local communities. I mean, there's a lot of work that happens there and particularly I think at moments where perhaps there hasn't been the same level of national leadership on issues around reconciliation, local reconciliation groups tend to get really active. So what have been some of your observations and reflections on how the local communities can build cohesion and work together on issues. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. And I've always said, you know, unless we can feel reconciliation in our daily lives, or we can feel it in our communities, we're not really getting as far as we think we are. Um, One of the things that happened early on last year, uh, when those early lockdowns started to happen, and everybody was kind of in the dark, I guess, of what, what to do. And rightly so, Um, the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Services came together and and to lock down remote communities, particularly as we're seeing kind of right now what's happening in Western New South Wales. But in those early days, that that immediacy of shutdown. um, But of course, one of the unintended consequences of all of that was a whole heap of supplies uh, weren't able to get into communities as well. And what I was really pleased to see is a number of uh, local community groups, uh, a lot of the the not-for-profit kind of community groups, but also some of the bigger corporate organisations coming together to get essential services, essential food, um, essential equipment and materials into those remote and regional communities at a time when they need it the most. And I think that's a kind of bigger scale things that I know of, things that happen every single day, whether it's thinking about the communities that people 
people live in and thinking about the traditional or original names of those places, whether it's thinking about how do we talk about the history of this place, the good, the bad, and the often the ugly and, and hurtful and painful parts of it. And how do we uh, allows us to own all of that history, to own all of that past, but create and forge a better future for us? Uh, in those examples you gave, there are obviously there would be moments of huge contention about history, and we've seen these divides between uh, black armband, white blindfold. But you speak of very practical ways in which uh, communities can come together and, and uh, I guess, uh, be joined about storytelling about history. How important is storytelling and the exchange of uh, stories in, in building those connections? Oh, storytelling is absolutely necessary. Um, it is, we all love a story. We, our lives are storybooks that every day we write a new page or a new chapter for. Um, as humans, we crave that kind of structure to kind of explain what's happened in the past, but also um, understand where we are today and where we want to go into the future. So storytelling is, is such an important part of society. And I think when we think about First Nations people, it is so essential. It's, it's how our culture lives. It's how um, we pass on those memories, that history, all of that. And I think the important part of reconciliation or coming, bringing those different threads of stories and different perspectives of, of history in the past, that itself, just the conversation is part of what successful reconciliation looks like. If we can't come together and hear each other out, and we may end up not completely agreeing on everything, but at least we can chart a way through of understanding each other. Um, it's those crucial first steps. And again, as you were saying, you know, communities, we say this all the time with First Nations peoples, you know, our communities know what's best for us. And that goes for all communities, communities where you are living and breathing and working together, where you're engaging together, where you understand the nuances of whether it's the geography or the way the community kind of works or doesn't work, um, and who within those communities are the people that we trust, who are the people that we look to um, to provide that leadership, to provide that um, understanding of things. All of this stuff is built into communities, whether it's First Nations communities, whether it's uh, communities from, from culturally and linguistically diverse. You know, I grew up in Western um, Sydney, so I, I'm really familiar with that. And it's always about who are the people you trust and, and how do we have that shared common experience. And what's your experience and observation about how to properly go about consultation and bringing people to the table who can provide those insights from a government point of view? What advice would you have about how those processes work most effectively? I think it's really important to listen. We hear a lot about, you know, people having to be at the table and all the rest, and that's absolutely important. But there is no point in having people at the table if they're not listened to, if they're not heard. Um, if I think back and sort of all of those defining moments with First Nations people, when we talk about stolen generations, when we talk about uh, some of the traumas of colonisation, it's about having those stories heard. Um, so it's hearing and understanding what people are truly saying when they put those points of view forward. And I think in these moments of crisis, and I, I have a quote on my um, on my computer 
which is from Martin Luther King, which says, you know, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And I think these are the moments that can absolutely increase this, um, these moments of trust and building that relationship of trust, but they can also break it down when people are not heard, when they're not listened to. And, and when there's an assumption to just push things through without taking that moment to to really step back and listen you know there there is a speed at which things need to happen but I think often it's the speed of trust and sometimes you also can build that in the non-crisis uh, times it's it's what you put in the bank, I guess, if you like, to draw upon in these moments of crisis. There's a really interesting point you make there, and I guess it speaks to your experience in the reconciliation space, which, you know, obviously has been a process that's been decades long in terms of um, the time it's taken to achieve um, what it's achieved so far. Obviously, the divisions uh, that we're seeing now are quite deep. What's your advice in terms of the time and patience we might need to rebuild cohesiveness and and rebuild a bit of uh, that um, unity that we've that that we seem to have lost? Yeah, I mean, as I said, we we talk a lot about this idea of the speed of trust and what does that truly mean? How how do you build that? I often think part of that is linked to humility. Uh, the humility to acknowledge when you get things wrong, uh, the humility to say, I don't actually know everything. So whether that's a government or a leader or, um, you know, whoever within the community. And part of that humility then comes, as I said, with that idea of, and I think people that showing of that vulnerability um, shows our humanity. And I think with that, that creates a connection point for us to be able to to move forward. Um, I wish I had all the answers. I think if I did, uh, we'd probably be a bit further along where we are uh, in this process of reconciliation. But I guess what I do see is um, those moments when people do come together, when they stand up. Uh, it's 20 years since the the. Sydney Harbour Bridge walks, moments like that when people actually stood up, the 1967 referendum where the majority of Australians stood up for the rights of First Nations people. Um, and it's also as part of that humility of part of that standing up for the others. And if that means, you know, at this moment in time, uh, needing to kind of endure a few kind of inconveniences in our life for the safety and the betterment of the rest of the community, then again, that shows that humanity and humility. One of the, the things that I think is um, really interesting about the work that you do at Reconciliation Australia is that you you do do a lot of work that helps non-Indigenous people understand what life might be like for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, that process of getting people to see things from the other side. I think one of the things that came out of the conversation earlier in the show was the fact that people perhaps don't really understand what it's like for families living in a, a low socioeconomic position, overcrowding, lack of resources, all of those sorts of things. And I was just wondering, from your perspective, how important is is the responsibility that we take, and we can always blame, but what are the sorts of things we can do uh, to better understand people who have a different experience to us? Yeah, I think the first step is really understanding that just your experience is not the only experience. Um, sometimes I think we forget, and particularly uh, potentially in more affluent kind of times, we think, well, why couldn't you just do that or just do this? And there's a reality of, as you said, you know, the, the, the experience of others isn't always the same as yours. And 
acknowledging that as a first step helps. Um, the responsibility then becomes learning more about that, um, creating that empathy, understanding what is happening in those communities, understanding, I guess, the challenges that we as a society face. Um, and then I think it's also about speaking up. Um, we talk a lot about allyship in the reconciliation space and what does that really mean? So I think once you start to understand that empathy, once you understand or have some knowledge of kind of another experience, it's also then part of that duty of you to go and have those conversations with others or speak up when you hear other people kind of dismissing or diminishing those experiences. And I think the more people that we have doing that and standing up and being a true ally, so it's not just, I like to think of them more as conspirators with us, that's how we get change. That's how we get to build a society that is inclusive of more people and more experiences. And we see the value of that. We focused a bit on what we can learn from the sort of work that people like yourself are doing in terms of building uh, unity and, and creating important conversations. But I was wondering if you could also perhaps give us your reflections just on reconciliation, how it's going in Australia. Where are we making real progress and, and where perhaps uh, do we still need to do some hard work? Well, we always talk about reconciliation as it's a journey. Um, it's sometimes a bumpy road. Sometimes we get distracted on kind of detours. But generally, I think we are heading in the same direction, which I think is the most important part of that. What we know through um, our reconciliation barometer that we hold every couple of years is that the majority of Australians, over 90% of Australians, believe of a better relationship between First Nations peoples and, and the rest of Australia. And that's a really important starting point, that, that we want to have these better relationships. And with that, we want to have better outcomes because there are positives for all of us when that happens. We have some bumps and I think, you know, particularly some of the experiences of last year sort of highlighted, I guess, where those cracks are or where we haven't really lived up to those ideals, if you like. But that gives me hope. The thing that makes me um, jump out of bed in the morning is that more and more Australians are educating themselves. More and more Australians are standing up and saying this isn't good enough. Uh, more and more Australians are actually taking that uh, step to become better allies, to actually question some of the things that we've always held to to be true or to to that's framed the way that we think about our society and the relationship with First Nations people. And when people do that, they're opened up to this much greater and richer experience. And that's uh, one of the really heartening things that we're seeing across the board. Just picking up on one of the comments you made there about the importance of people doing uh, the education themselves, doing that, that sort of heavy lifting, what are your suggestions and in particular what resources are available through Reconciliation Australia, particularly perhaps for people who um, are interested in, in getting this information to their children? Yeah, so we've got lots of um, uh, resources on our website, uh, but we also, in particular, when it comes to children, we have a program called Narragana Wally, uh, which is specifically run through um, schools and early learning services, and there are heaps of resources there. We also partner with amazing organisations like the ABC. We've done some stuff for Play School. Uh, we have a number of educational resources there on all sorts of topics both in that sort of school curriculum um, context, but also just 
you know, did you know kind of trivia kind of questions and things that just, I guess, flesh out or broaden out that kind of understanding and that opportunity to understand difference and that different experience. But there's also so many other resources out there. Like I said, the ABC has some great stuff there, uh, as does SBS and other uh, media organisations. But there are films, there are books, there are all sorts of ways to enter into this conversation um, that doesn't have to be hard or frightening, but hopefully the more that people learn, the more that people engage, the more interested they are going to be about facing up to, I guess, some of those harder conversations. Karen, just finally, can you share with us some of the things that you've been doing to, um, I guess, find your way through this period? How have you been been staying strong or, or keeping your resilience? Yeah, so I think one of the really important one is, is staying connected to mob, whoever that mob might be. So talking and Zooming regularly with my family and my nieces and nephews, but also with a kind of my urban family, my f- network of, of friends and colleagues as well. Finding those kind of moments. So rather when I go for my walk, it's making sure that I just take the moment to really connect with country, even though this is not my country here in Sydney, but you know, really focusing on the trees or the sun or things that connect me to something bigger. And I think when I'm connected to something bigger, that gives me both strength, but it gives me thoughtfulness about what is this idea of something bigger and how, even though I'm okay at this moment, um, how do I help others who might be struggling a bit? That's CEO of Reconciliation Australia, Karen Mundine, speaking with me on ABC Radio Sydney's Focus. That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.